up on today's podcast. The difficulty is that these experiences of grief and loss and guilt and trauma turn us into highly emotionally charged people who have so much to say that is passionate that we appear to be maniacal to the other side. How do we make sense of war when it's taking place far away from home with a complex history and culture? What role can we as individuals play in changing the narrative, the division and polarisation and helping humanity step back from the brink? I'm Jane Gunn, the Barefoot Mediator, and this is a show where we have some of those deep conversations about issues and choices that are impacting society and our lives right now. In today's episode, I am speaking with Ken Cloak, an international mediator and author and founder of Mediators Beyond Borders about what we can each do to reverse the tide of war by learning and applying the skills, tools, and mindset of mediation in our own lives. Welcome, Ken. Thank you, Jane. Ken, it's wonderful to have you back. And I I know we've had some very special and deep conversations in the past, uh, always about mediation and, and peacemaking. And I thought now is such a relevant time to have you back to chat about really what's going on in the world obviously in Israel and Palestine and mm-hmm. and more broadly really your thoughts so I'm sure you've got many and and I've written down quite a few that we can that we can talk about um just for the listeners who haven't heard you before Ken can you give a little bit of a background as to your you know your passion for the work that you do in mediation mm-hmm. and making Well, my background actually extends from being in the 1960s a part of the various political movements that took place at that time, including the peace movement uh, regarding the war in Vietnam and the civil rights movement as well. So I have some long history with concern over these issues and have been thinking about them quite a bit on and off over the years. Uh, I, for the last 43 years, I have been a full-time mediator, uh, facilitator, dialogue facilitator, uh, problem solver, conflict resolver, and um, helped to found an organization called Mediators Beyond Borders. And I have done conflict resolution work in about 25 different countries. So I have some experience working in different cultures and on multiple levels, ranging from the very, very small to the very, very large. And I think that there are there are a couple of lessons that come out of this. The first is captured by the Canadian novelist Margaret Atwood, uh, who said that, uh, and I quote, war is what happens when language fails. Yes. But the que- that begs the question, why does language fail? And... I think that the fundamental reasons have to do with an accumulation of emotional intense experiences, emotionally intense experiences around grief and loss, uh, as well as around guilt. Uh, There's a famous statement by the Israeli uh, Prime Minister Golda Meir many years ago, who said, uh, and again, I quote, we can forgive the Palestinians for killing our children, but we will never forgive them for forcing us to kill theirs. That's amazing. And so this accumulation of grief and guilt yes. uh, seeks some form of expression. And this dance that Israelis and Palestinians have been engaged in now for many, many decades has a deeper, more fundamental cause. And this one, I'd like to actually read this quote out loud. This is from uh, Hannah Arendt. Yes. Um, She says the following. The chief reason warfare is still with us is neither a secret death wish of the human species nor an irrepressible instinct of aggression, nor finally, and more plausibly, the serious economic and social dangers inherent in disarmament but the simple fact that no substitute for this final arbiter in international affairs has yet appeared on the political scene. And what that means is that on, in some bizarre, strange way, this is our time. 
meaning it is a time when it is increasingly abundantly clear that choosing sides in the sense of choosing whose children get to be killed and whose do not makes no sense at all. So when it comes to the lives of children, we don't want to choose sides. And what conflict resolution stands for is the principle of choosing both sides when it comes to respect, when it comes to dignity, when it comes to being listened to and heard, when it comes to having their interests satisfied. So the mistake is the mistake of assuming that there is a single correct answer. Yes. So here is my favorite three categories of questions. I may have mentioned these to you in an earlier podcast, I don't remember. But there are three categories of questions we can ask your listeners. Category one, who is the tallest person listening to this podcast? Who is the shortest? Who's the oldest? Who's the youngest? Who lives the closest to the Tower of London? Who lives the furthest away? Mm -hmm. And notice that there is a single correct answer for everyone to each of these questions. And that those answers arrange themselves in a hierarchy so that the oldest is at the top or the youngest or the tallest or the shortest. And uh, this creates a kind of relationship between the question and all of the people who answer it. And it's a relationship based on power, based on domination, based on superiority. Second category of question. How old are you? How tall are you? Where do you live? And notice now we have no comparison with anyone else. We are simply asking you who you are. And your answers will then become facts. And those facts will uh, essentially allow us to interact with one another on the basis of either facts or on the basis of principles, which we call law. So the first category of questions is about power, and the second category of questions is about rights. There's a third category of questions, and the third category is this. What issues are you facing at whatever age you're at? What does your height mean to you? What did your height mean to you when you were growing up? What do you love about where you live? What do you not love about where you live? And now notice there are multiple correct answers for each person. And we don't even know what the word correct means anymore. It means that it means something to the person who answered, but there's no test for it. With, if you ask how tall you are, we can go out and measure and find out whether you've told the truth. And that's what happens in court. But the third category of question are interest-based questions in which everyone's answer not only that, everyone's uh, multiple, complex, uh, different answers add to the total store of possibilities for each of our experiences. It is a gift to each of us to hear people describe what is true for them. And it brings the human being into the conversation. Those are the questions that are not being asked in the Middle East. Yes, I so agree, uh, Ken. And obviously, that's the framework for mediation, the work that you and I do and have done for many years. I go back to your thinking about as well, the guilt and the loss and the grief, because I often say and reflect that my job is often about mediating guilt, loss, and grief, and that that's a that's often not recognized in the beginning, but we are doing that. And the, and the other thing I, I wonder is then sometimes that guilt and that loss and that grief comes from the past. In other words, it's trauma-based. Always, yeah. And, and that, again, is hard, a hard task when you think, I'm trying to resolve the problem in front of me, and yet the problem in front of me is not the whole problem. It's only the immediate problem, and there's a long historical context to this problem, which we see in the Middle East, which 
must at some level be based on past trauma and guilt and grief and loss. And how do we unpack that? And certainly you can't unpack yeah. it or unpick it from the level only of power and only of rights. It has to be based on how people feel about it, what their needs are, what their interests are, what their experience of how the past and the present has been. The two kind of interesting ideas. One uh, comes from George Orwell, uh, who said that every war, uh, when it comes is, or before it comes, is represented not as a war, but as an act of self-defense against a homicidal maniac. And the difficulty is that these experiences of grief and loss and guilt and trauma turn us into highly emotionally charged people who have so much to say that is passionate that we appear to be maniacal to the other side. And the other is a statement, uh, interesting statement by Jean-Paul Sartre, who said, if you uh, have dominated someone or oppressed them for a period of time, or simply, I would extend that and say, just not listened to them, for a period of time, and or you've had your, your foot on their neck and prevented them from being able to speak, when, they've, when all of a sudden you take your foot off for a moment and you look into their eyes, what kind of gaze do you expect to see? And the answer, of course, is we all want to see a gaze of gratitude, mm. but that's not the first response on the part of people, anyone who is experiencing pain. And the difficulty here is both sides are experiencing pain and continuing to experience it because they are justifying committing pain, uh, or I won't say committing, but uh, 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 creating the circumstances in which people experience pain to each other. And part of this is simply, if you think of it, uh, at its most basic level, it is an effort to communicate to the other side what it feels like to be treated this way. Yes. Not with language, but with action. Mm. By duplicating what the other side has done to you. And we can find this in every conflict. If someone insults you, your first response is going to be to insult them right back. But what you are really saying is, I would like you to understand what it feels like to be insulted. So I'd like to tell you, but frankly, I don't trust you enough to become vulnerable in your presence right now. So in, and besides, that's just words, which you're probably not going to listen to. So I'd like to teach you by giving you the experience of being insulted so that you will then understand what it feels like and stop doing it. But the problem is that's the first eye for an eye which calls forth the second eye for an eye, which calls forth the third, which calls forth the fourth. And so it turns in a circle, and that becomes the beginning of the vendetta. But now the question is, how do you stop a vendetta? Because each side is remembering the last eye that was taken from them, not the eye they took from the other. They only remember the eye that was taken from them. And now it becomes impossible to stop because that's a form of con condemnation of what was done to you, even permission to do it again. But the truth is otherwise. The truth is, if you can stop the vendetta and pull back and say, look at what is taking place here, and actually hold your suffering up as a mirror to the other person, then it becomes possible to talk. And this is the, the, in the movie Gandhi, there is a wonderful movie. And of course, this is the secret of nonviolence. There's a moment in which, and I experience this moment often in the South during the civil rights movement, a moment when nonviolence becomes a form of, a real form of power. When someone beats you and you do nothing in return, yes, their beating of you is reflected back to them, your nonviolence becomes a mirror in which they get to see who they have become. Their own hatefulness becomes clear to them. 
So if, for example, Hamas had come into Israel and killed no one and maybe taken some hostages to trade for uh, Palestinian hostages, we wouldn't be in this situation now. And if Israel had taken what Hamas did and the murders that took place on October 7th and broadcast them to the world and done nothing in response, but negotiate for the release of the hostages, we would be in a very different position right now. But precisely because, and here's another element in it, precisely because of the fact that Hamas succeeded in invading Israel, which it wasn't supposed to be able to do, precisely because of that, Israel was humiliated and needed to sort of reestablish its dominance in the form of a real overreaction, as well as, of course, the incredibly powerful emotional experience of having watched people uh, suffer and die. And there are people on both sides have watched that suffering and dying take place. Um, But nobody has seen it in a way that allows them to stop the next round. And that's one of the things I wanted to reflect on with you, uh, Ken, is is this process of escalation. It's something that I see in almost every conflict that I mediate is that it's escalated and it's going to continue escalating unless we can Mm -hmm. stop process the other just going back a bit though and reflecting on the eye for an eye I actually think the eye in terms of the eye the person the ego is also very important here and what you were saying about how people feel is that one of the key things uh, that provokes a response is people being made to feel less than less than good about themselves and therefore the I is denigrated it, it you know they become and therefore the defenses of themselves or their tribe if you like or their nation because they have been made to feel less than in some way and so they are defending that ego if you like even on a national level and then of course it escalates and the escalation although we see it in every conflict, becomes much more complex when you've got, as we have had this weekend, people taking to the streets to protest and therefore taking sides, adopting a narrative, um, becoming us versus them. So the escalation has happened now on a global scale, even though we're not at a stage of world war, we have seen an escalation because people have taken sides and they have Uh, taken to the streets or or they've taken to social media to express their concerns and that helps the process to escalate I think. Uh, It it does absolutely and it also gives a platform to those who would like to see democracy eliminated. Yes. So it is one of the reasons for the rise of fascism uh, was the creation of social conflicts that did not seem to be able to be resolved through democracy. And so people gave up on democracy in an effort to have some solution. And the solution, we have three fundamental solutions uh, that are possible solutions based on power, which is simply to eliminate the conflict by eliminating the opposition. And the ultimate expression of this is genocide. Option number two, um, to eliminate the conflict through adversarial competitive negotiations. And that's and through principles of law. But we have found, certainly with regard to uh, international human rights law and principles of international law, that in both Ukraine and in the Middle East, um, it's a kind of race to the bottom. Uh, And whoever it is who's willing to violate international law has an advantage in the military combat. And therefore, there is a constant tension, which is if you want to be effective in winning over and against the other side, you're driven to commit war crimes. 
because that's what actually defeats the other side. Terrorism, uh, destruction of civilian populations, simply the exhaustion that comes from warfare and all the damage that it encounters. But all of this is a complete waste because none of it is in fact necessary. It is possible to do it in a completely different way. And that is in what the way that we call interest-based uh, collaborations. So most nation states have created internal cooperation and external competition. Yes. And then there's in addition to that, a kind of in, uh, internal cooperation among uh, those who are the most, the elites, the people who are the most powerful and an internal competition against those who would take power away from them. So this is the nature of power. It has to continually fight for um, uh, dominance over others. And there is no limit on how far that can go. Uh, it ends ultimately with the complete elimination of diversity, which of course also eliminates the possibility of creative problem solving. So instead what we require is um, and I should say, I should take a step back and say that there was a man, who, um, an American intellectual whose name was Randolph Bourne, who wrote after World War I a really uh, very challenging article. And the title of the article is War is the Health of the State. And what he means by that is that war creates a powerful impetus to unification. People stop challenging the leader during that period of war because you can't attack your own leader when the other side is attacking. There's a much more a, a sort of agreement and, and a, um, what's the word, a kind of legitimation of the use of force than there is otherwise. So what we instead have to figure out is how do we solve problems collaboratively as a planet? And the answer is through the techniques that we use in small-scale mediations by scaling those techniques up yes. to uh, a point where they can operate on a large and a mid on a large scale. And that is absolutely possible. We've seen it happen and it can happen again. And I think people will want to know, Ken, how do we do that? Can we do that now? And uh, what role can yes. we, the individuals, maybe those people listening who aren't peacemakers like you and I, what can we do? How can we initiate this change in approach? I wanted also to just uh, bring your attention to uh, something that I just uh, found out this afternoon is that when women are involved in peace negotiations, the probability of a peace agreement lasting at least two years increases by 20% and 15 years by 35%. And, and you mentioned the children. Uh, and I just wonder if there's this sense that maybe women being mothers, sisters, aunts and grandmothers, not that other people don't have that connection to the children, but I wonder if there is something there. I, I know when I became a mediator, it was literally a call I answered a, an article which said call for women mediators and there was a sense that there was a need for women to balance out the men who were dominating the field of mediation commercial mediation at that stage and to bring their different perspective and I wonder if that also has a role to play absolutely the and I love the the statistic is wonderful and what it uh, demonstrates on a large scale is what we know on a small scale, mm. which is that there are two fundamental neurotransmitters in, when it comes to conflict. Adrenaline, which triggers the fight-or-flight reflex, and oxytocin, which triggers the opposite reflex, which is what is called tend and befriend. So adrenaline breaks down oxytocin, oxytocin breaks down adrenaline. How do we trigger the release of oxytocin? By focusing on children. Mm -hmm. The photograph of a child um, will release oxytocin in the person who's looking at the photograph. The experience of generosity, of kindness, releases oxytocin. 
Um, there are a whole series of things that we do in conflict resolution that at a neurophysiological level are reducing the kind of addiction to combat and providing an alternative, which is the alternative which is represented by women, uh, the alternative of family, of uh, uh, affection and caring for one another. But these are not exclusively female qualities and also uh, are able to develop them and use them very effectively. Yes. So what do we do? I think the first thing that we do is we stop uh, creating enemies out of each other. And notice how this war has uh, replicated itself in the form of dramatic increases in anti-Semitism and Islamophobia everywhere around the world, in the United States, in colleges and universities. And this is actually creating a generation of people who are uh, hold each other uh, in uh, hatred, but hatred is a very is a consuming emotion, and what we need to look at is what's underneath it, and how it why it's necessary to create an enemy, and to blame that enemy for everything. How do we do this? We create an assumption of injurious intention. They intended to cause the harm that we experience. We distrust every idea or statement that is made by them, which is wrong or proposed for dishonest reasons. We externalize our own guilt so that everything bad that happens is their fault. We attribute evil to them. They want to destroy us in what we value most and therefore they must be destroyed themselves. And fundamentally, most importantly for our purposes, we create an assumption of a zero-sum game. Only one can win. And out of a total of 10, if I get six, you get four. And if you get uh, three, I get seven. And therefore, it's set up in a way that is competitive and adversarial. And what we have to do is figure out how we step outside the zero-sum game into a non-zero-sum game. And there are a whole series of other things as well uh, about stereotyping and prejudgment and the collapse of neutrality and independence into opposition, the suppression of empathy, um, the, the ways in which we isolate uh, each other and refuse to engage in dialogue or negotiate or cooperate or resolve conflicts with the other side. So that what happens is that their evil makes it permissible for us to act in a way that would be called evil by them and vice versa. So it creates a self-fulfilling prophecy. Indeed, you can see in small scale conflicts, the ways in which one person will uh, who feels guilty about, and you can see this in children, where someone feels guilty about something and they will do something in order to provoke the other side into attacking them um, out of their own sense of guilt, which they want some release from. And so uh, what we have to see is that these are all human beings operating on a human scale even if they're the heads of nation states. Yes. And then what we have to do, I think, is to support some of the various groups that are actually doing incredibly beautiful work, um, like, uh, what is the name of it? Uh, uh, oh, it's not, it's not concerning children. It's, it's, it's a, a, an organization of parents, parents of children of Palestinians, parents of children of Israelis, there's an organization in the middle called uh, Alliance for Middle East Peace, um, ALMEP, yeah. and they support and give funding to uh, over a hundred organizations consisting of Palestinians and Israelis, including two of my favorites, uh, Combatants for Peace, mm -hmm. uh, which is an organization composed of former soldiers for the Israeli Defense Force, 
Hamas, Fatah, and Islamic Jihad. People who were fighting for each against each other who have now said it's time for this to stop. Okay. And second, a group called Women Wage Peace, yes. consisting yes. of Islamic and Jewish women in Israel and the Palestinian territories who work together to create dialogues. And dialogue is the fundamental methodology uh, that we have for addressing these issues. The trick in dialogue is figuring out what question to ask um, so that it doesn't start with a question that assumes a single correct answer, like the three categories of questions I mentioned before. Which were brilliant. Um, so we thank you for all those notes, Ken, and I'll, I'll make sure that they go in the show notes for today. I also worked in the past with Seeds of Peace. Uh, are you familiar with Seeds of Peace? There yes, I am. Nice charity. Um, and they would take uh, rather older sort of children, teenagers, if you like, but who had been identified with leadership capability, and they would bring them together for dialogue, for just general, the kind of activities that, you know, sports maybe or music, but they would do various collaborative activities together and it would end up with them going to Washington. I, I went with them one year um, and took my teenage children with me we, we went to Washington and met with Colin Powell the um, Secretary of State so that was uh, an amazing initiative which I think still exists in Washington so we'll put all of them and then I think for everybody as individuals uh, my sense is that now is the time that we as mediators are very much practiced our art of mediation and we'll come on to your book in a minute which is called that name but we've practiced our art of mediation very much where we were called to but we haven't been able to uh, enable the general public to access those skills and that mindset and those tools to understand the framework and how by perhaps understanding or practicing those skills every day simply in the world that they're in in the t they can make a difference absolutely yes i think that we have not done this for a variety of reasons one is because we have lacked a real understanding of how to participate in political activity which is what this is without becoming uh, tainted by the adversarial nature of the process without becoming a part of the problem ourselves. And so part of what I have tried to do, and I did this in a book that I wrote called Politics, Dialogue, and the Evolution of Democracy, was to try to come up with uh, a, an interest-based definition of politics. And I came up with three. So here are the three interest-based definitions of politics, which if we take them seriously, we can see that conflict resolvers and peacemakers around the world have a great deal to do that they can do that can contribute to this. Definition one, politics is a social problem solving process. That's all. It's just social problem solving. Well, if that's the case, then we can use mediators as social problem solvers, particularly community mediators, dialogue facilitators, restorative justice practitioners, etc., who can then help us engage in collaborative problem solving, which doesn't mean that people don't disagree with each other. It means that the framework for their disagreement is one in which consensus building is an activity that is a part of what they are involved in. And this leads to the second definition, an interest-based definition of politics. Politics is a large group, multi-stakeholder consensus building process. Well, if that's the case, we have practitioners who have experience in large group, multi-stakeholder consensus building processes, in environmental mediations, public policy mediations, and a whole series of large corporate mediations and community mediations that we have done around the world. that And we can bring that experience again to the problem of raising what works at a smaller scale to a much, much higher and more significant scale. 
Third, politics is a conflict resolution process. And so if we think about politics as a conflict resolution process, it means that, and uh, I think this is the truth, regardless of the form of politics, even power-based dictatorships are an effort to resolve conflicts but they're an effort to resolve them by having the dictator say what the answer is. And that may work for people who really don't care what the answer is or who aren't impacted by it or who aren't old enough to object. But as soon as you have a mind of your own, it's not going to work, as we can see in parent-teenage conflicts. And so what we have to do then is we have to shift the way that we resolve conflicts in an interest-based direction, which means that there is less reason to resort to terrorism or violence or domination or any of the various practices that people have been engaging in in this conflict and much more reason for people to listen to each other and uh, try to jointly address common problems. So I speak from the perspective of someone who has actually mediated dialogues between Israelis and Palestinians between Ukrainians and Russians, between Georgians and Russians, between Greek citizens and immigrants, between Sandinistas and Contras, and between supporters of Robert Mugabe in Zimbabwe and supporters of Morgan Svangarai, et cetera, et cetera. I've mediated dozens of these, or facilitated and mediated dozens of these dialogues. And I can tell you that every single one of them has produced conversations that could never have been imagined before they began. As soon as people started to speak to one another, the whole conversation shifted, the whole relationship shifted. So what's the secret? To ask the right set of questions. Here are some examples. Question one, what life experiences have you had that have led you to feel so deeply and passionately about this issue? Who are you and what's happened to you? to make you want to make your voice known. And number two, question number two, this is more, you can ask this of your spouse, of your children, of your significant others. Why do you feel so deeply about this issue? It's the same essential question. But what we're getting at is permission for people to say who they are and what they feel. There are others. And I've written a short little piece, which is called 50 questions to ask in political arguments that's been on mediate.com and a series of other places. Um, May we attach it to this or a link to it? Yes, of course. I'll I'll email it to you. Mm. Yeah, And so there are 50 that I came up with and then I stopped, but I think that there are (laughs) hundreds of others. Uh, Let me just give you a small example. Yes. So so I was asked by a very large national political organization in the United States to help them resolve their internal conflicts. They were supporting Democratic candidates for Congress and presidency in 2016. And everything was great as long as it was sort of Democrat versus Republican. But as soon as it became Democrat versus Democrat, they began to divide up between supporters of Bernie Sanders, the supporters of Joe Biden, supporters of Elizabeth uh, or Pete or whoever the candidate might have happened to have been. And as soon as you said the word Bernie or Joe or Elizabeth or Pete, all conversation stopped and it became a battle. And nobody was listening to anyone else anymore because they already knew exactly what the other person thought. So here were the two opening questions. Question one, without mentioning the name of the candidate that you support, what values do you believe your candidate stands for? And question two, how could we use those, con- those values to help us have a conversation right now that would be useful for both of you? Very powerful. And you can... Yeah. And so it's it's very, it's very simple, but it goes yeah. directly to the heart of what the problems are. Yes. And we are not going to be able to survive if we don't do this. Uh, the other thing I was listening to, I've been listening to a political commentator today uh, talking about, you talked about sort of the rise of fascism and authoritarianism and, and trying to solve these problems at the power level and, and overpowering the other and the opposite to that really is is not talking about left or right, but actually talking about subsidiarity, which means 
allowing problems to be resolved at the lowest possible level, you know, for example, allowing people to resolve their community problems in their own community without somebody who is very far removed from that community dictating what they should or shouldn't do because they have no understanding, if you like, of the feelings and context and interests of those people in that community. So it's very much like um, sort of delegating uh, decision-making in an organisation, but allowing this to, to devolve back to our community level rather than where we seem to be moving to, which is global centralization, which is worrying on a level that if you get it wrong and you've applied a particular way of thinking to the whole globe, there is nowhere to go. Whereas if you've got lots of different models working in their own communities at their own individual level then you can see what's working and what isn't working and we can adopt a model that maybe another community has found successful and we've got more more choices absolutely it's a fundamental ecological principle that any species that has lost its biodiversity has lost the ability to adapt in in, uh, under changing conditions we are now in a world that is changing rapidly and what we require more than anything else is that kind of diversity of thinking. Mary Parker followed, who's one of the founders of mediation in the United States in the 1920s, modern mediation, wrote that when people talk about getting rid of conflict, they actually uh, are oftentimes thinking of getting rid of diversity. But that's a horrible thing to do because it means that all the creativity goes out of problem solving. As soon as you have done that, you can't think outside the box anymore. And when you're facing a simple problem, that's not a problem. But when the problem becomes complex and evolving, then it becomes more difficult. Adolf Hitler said in a kind of famous statement, he said uh, that the German people were facing very difficult, very complex problems. I made them simple. And the two simplest approaches to conflict are, one, there isn't any. And two, it's your fault. <laughs> this is so true. And I think, again, uh, uh, maybe listening to uh, Nick Hudson, who I was listening to, what we fail to appreciate is the context and the complexity of problems that we aim to solve. And so we reduce them to the simplest narrative and then we try and resolve them with the simplest solution. And so therefore miss the complex, diverse solutions and thinking and the um, critical thinking that is the process I think sometimes people are frustrated as to why a mediation is a process and why it takes so long but it takes so long because there's a lot of thinking and dialogue to be gone through and sometimes you have to loop around many times before you get to the answer Yes. uh, And what's really important is the recognition that there are higher order skills that are required in order to solve problems in those ways. So if you ask what level of skill do you need to live in a dictatorship, um, the answer is to know how to obey and keep your mouth shut. Mm -hmm. But if you were living in a procedural democracy, It requires a higher level of skill. You have to be able to understand the issues. You require education. You require, uh, you know, some sort of back and forth and the ability to at least debate with the other side, which is the correct answer. And there is a third, still higher order of skill, which is required for interest-based problem solving. And those are the skills in actually listening to the other side in trying to understand what it is that they really want and why they want it, and then try to tailor solutions to the reasons that are given, not to the thing itself. So not everybody can have everything that they want if it's a scarce resource, but we can figure out ways of resolving it that meet people's basic fundamental needs. It is not necessary uh, to dehumanize people Uh, in order to be able to uh, make decisions, even decisions that go against them. It doesn't have to be done in a dehumanizing way. And we know from the level of democracy that we have had, we can lose, and it's okay as long as we feel like we've been heard. But 
what we're talking about here is the uh, increasing need for a higher order of democracy, a democracy that doesn't just consist of elections and debates, but consists of people actively participating in joint decision-making and engaging in dialogues. That's way more complex and requires higher order skills, but these are the skills that mediators are acquiring. And it can only that can only happen if we start at the local level by making decisions or enabling decisions to be made in our families, in our schools, in our yes, and that we build know. from the bottom. Absolutely, and if you want to have a sense about what any political or corporate, you know, program really means, ask what would happen if you did it in your family. Yeah. So Gaza and the war. Ask what would happen if you did this in your family. Mm. And of course, you would destroy the family. But the point is quite clear. We are family. Yes. We are one species. We just haven't figured it out. And I, I, I keep coming back at the moment to this criteria for what is it that promotes human flourishing? Does this response, does this attitude, does this solution promote human flourishing and if it doesn't you've probably used the wrong criteria yeah absolutely very nice that's a beautiful one mm. yeah the you can tell also what happens well let me just put it slightly differently this is not just a problem in uh, israel and gaza or ukraine and russia it is a problem the entire planet is facing we are facing it you're facing it in uh, Great Britain, we are facing it in the United States. It is the problem of listening and inclusion and respect for differences. It is a problem of how we treat one another and whether there is room within the various problems that we are facing uh, for differences of opinion about how to handle and deal with them. And the difficulty is that rather than preparing and putting um, resources into problem solving, social planning, conflict resolution, we are instead putting resources into death and destruction. Um, a famous sociologist in the United States, whose name is C. Wright Mills, wrote in a book called uh, uh, The Causes of World War III, uh, he said that ultimately the cause of World War III is the preparation for it. Yeah. And, he and we have been preparing for this and preparing for nuclear war yeah. and preparing for disaster for a long time. But we have done nothing to prepare for peace. The other book I have on my shelf, Ken, is War is a Force That Gives Us Meaning or Purpose. Yes. And I think that people are always looking for a purpose. and. Yes. If they find that purpose in in war or in supporting a particular narrative or side in a war, then that gives them purpose. But if we could find meaning and purpose in peacemaking and in learning the skills that you've outlined today, maybe that would be an alternative. Yeah, the only other alternative is to sink into hatred and cruelty and barbarism. Mm. And that is the direction that we are moving in. And the political form of a barbaric culture is fascism. Um, that is the correct political form uh, for engaging in barbaric, barbaric treatment of other people. It's the only form that can do it. And the correct form for bureaucracy and kind of the... Um, kind of the, the way that we are handling things today is the procedural democracy. But what we are actually required to do is to elevate the level of our politics to match the level of the problems that we are facing. And the problems that we are facing are now global um, and potentially catastrophic. And what we require is a vastly higher level of collaboration than we are accustomed to. We need to develop the collaborative arts and sciences, which is why your program is so important and why your books and all of our books that we write and all of the work that we do 
is so important. It actually matters to the world whether we take this seriously. But the point is really back to Hannah Arendt. We now do have the technique, the technology that is needed in order for peace to work. And it's not an easy one. It's a difficult, arduous, time-consuming one. And the least time that is required for any of this is the time to simply ignore all of this and pretend that it's about the evil of the other side. Well, Ken, thank you. As I wrote in one of my blogs recently, there's big work to do, and so we must do it. <laughs> yes. We must, yes, and we thank must you for contributing to that. But thank you, Ken, too. So have you got one final message, Ken, um, for our listeners? Yes. The, the message is a phrase that I use for myself, uh, and I call it the mediation butterfly effect. Mm -hmm. And as we know from looking at the science of weather prediction, uh, the butterfly effect means that the flapping of the wings in the Amazonian rainforest of a butterfly can create a tornado in Texas several months later. Mathematically, this is proven to be correct. But here's the point. It can also stop a tornado in Texas. Yes. And so what we want to do is look at how we, each of us, live our lives, what we do in our families, what we do in our communities, what we do in our marriages and intimate relationships, and what we do as citizens. All of this counts. But what we need to do is to bring what we know to be true as human beings um, to the level of global um, uh, uh, interactions. And that's going to take some work, but we have a set of skills that we know will help us do this. Thank you so much, Ken. I appreciate your time so much. It's been an amazing conversation and so much more we could say, but we'll keep that for our next interview. Um, Wonderful. <laughs> finally, where do people find you? And I know you've got a new book coming out, The Magic in Mediation, I think it's called. Is mm -hmm. that right? Yes, that's right. It'll be out in a couple of weeks. Excellent. Um, and uh, should be on Amazon. It's a, a, a detailed analysis. One of the chapters is about the war in Ukraine and all wars. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, another chapter is about, it's called Imagining an Interest-Based State. So that's available. Uh, my website is also one that people can uh, connect to. It's just kencloak.com. Ken, thank you. It's it's thank been you, to have this dialogue with you. Let's hope that everybody explores and discovers the skills of dialogue and interest-based resolution for themselves. Fabulous. I agree. It's it's a total pleasure to do this work. And I hope everybody gets a chance to find that out for themselves. I agree. Thank you so much, Ken. Thank, thank you. you, Jane. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues. Please do subscribe to the Barefoot Survival podcast series. And if you would like to access my free video series for managing in times of change, challenge and crisis, please go to janegunn.co.uk forward slash video. The link is in the show notes.